In this week's episode of the Nerd Byword, we are breaking down the Fantastic Four movie from 2005. Can we fix it? Is it going to be fantastic or are we all doomed? The Byword starts now. Ladies and gentlemen, nerds, welcome to another episode of the Nerd Byword Podcast, episode 110. I'm Dave, I'm here with my buddy Chris, and in this week's episode, we're doing one of our deep dive fixes of a movie that uh, is superhero adjacent, and this is, of course, the Fantastic Four movie from 2005. But before we get into all of that, we have some... For all of you. Uh, now, Chris, your story this week is, I don't know, deeply troubling on some level. What have you got? Well, I thought it was very apropos for today's episode, so this was perfect timing. We were recording a couple of weeks uh, ahead of time here, but this just came across my timeline as I finished the um, the viewing of, of the film. So it's kind of crazy how, how it all worked out. But uh, Hall of Fame shock jock Howard Stern may have spilled the beans on a hot mic regarding his next big-time business venture. In recently leaked audio, it would appear that Stern is headed to Latveria. While you have to sift through the live ad reads, some of the dialogue that clearly stands out from Stern is as follows, quote, They're going over the schedule with me, and it's going to suck. I told you, I'm going to do Dr. Doom. That's the thing. But believe me, I'm effing miserable about it. I called Robert Downey Jr. and I was asking him acting techniques, end quote. In the midsummer lull, speculation has run rampant. While a live action role is highly unlikely for a multitude of reasons, some theories include Stern interviewing Doom, Stern lending his vocal talents to an animated project like What If Season 2, or that this could all be just a huge prank. We'll surely get more in depth on this topic later in the show, but what do you make of this, Dave? Well, don't call me Shirley, first of all. Um, but, you know, I, can, can I just not give less of a crap about Howard Stern? I mean, I know the guy had like this major cultural relevance moment being like this this shock jock kind of guy. But at this point, I think he's just like not really relevant all that much anymore. Like, I can't see him playing Doctor Doom in live action. Um, some kind of voice thing I could probably... <clears throat> Some kind of voice thing I could probably see, but but other than that, like I I can't think of a single Marvel fan that would be particularly excited about a a Doctor Doom casting voice or live action that involves Howard Stern. So un- unless this is a giant prank, I would say this is a pretty solid miss, don't you think, Chris? Yeah, this is a really wild thing. I'm, I'm leaning towards that, or maybe they do something along the lines of of like an interview in in something, but like. The timing of this is weird. I know that with um, spoilers for Multiverse of Madness, if you didn't listen to last week, but with John Krasinski showing up as Reed Richards, uh, a lot of people are starved for like the next big reveal for Fantastic Four adjacent news. And so maybe this is much ado about nothing. <clears throat> maybe it's, you know, something like they've they've had like big name media figures. Like they, I remember like, like back in the... 
the mid aughts and like those those superhero movies pre MCU movies. Um, they would have like the New York seven, like anchors and stuff show up. And so like that made like these real world type of connections that Marvel likes to do both in comics and, and in the film franchises. Um, so maybe it's something like that, but the timing of this is weird. We have no like cast reveals. We have, we don't even have a new director yet. So I'm, I'm leaning towards Frank or something minimal or I honestly don't know. Uh, Howard Stern is probably going to be Dr. Doom about as much as John Krasinski was Mr. Fantastic. I mean, that that's about the extent that I could imagine him doing much of anything. All right, Dave, we've got a continuing thread going here for your news story. Yeah, yeah, I've talked a lot about the fact that uh, the uh, TV series Quantum Leap uh, meant a whole lot to me growing up. It was uh, one of my first big exposures to like the concept of time travel. Um, you know, and, and the whole setup of the show about, you know, the exact opposite of what most time travel things are about rather than going uh, in the past and, and not changing. I think it's very specifically fixing, uh, you know, things that went wrong. And of course, there's been a lot of rumblings and casting announcements and the like that there is going to be a quote unquote reboot, but more like a sequel of this series. Um of course, the original show focused on uh, Dr. Sam Beckett, who uh, used a device called the Quantum Leap Accelerator to literally leap in other people's lives in the past. And uh, some higher power basically took control of the project and put him where he was needed so he could, you know, improve people's lives. They were very, you know, sort of small scale personal stories for the most part. Um, and, and that really, really endeared itself to me. Now, obviously, uh, I have... Uh, kind of looked at this whole thing with trepidation because Sam Beckett himself, Scott Bakula, is not in fact uh, scheduled to return for the series, which if it is in fact a sequel is sort of a big misstep and a deal breaker uh, for me. But what we have gotten is some more information about the new show. Um, it will premiere on Monday, September 19th at 10. So it is uh, following The Voice. Uh, which yay, I guess. Um, and uh, they have given a much deeper description of uh, what the show is actually about. And so here is the released uh, synopsis. It's been nearly 30 years since Dr. Sam Beckett stepped into the Quantum Leap Accelerator and vanished. Now a new team led by physicist Ben Song uh, has been assembled to restart the project in hope of understanding the mysteries behind the machine and the man who created it. Everything changes, however, when Ben makes an unauthorized leap into the past, leaving the team behind to solve the mystery of why he did it. At Ben's side throughout his leaps is Addison, who appears in the form of a hologram only Ben can see and hear. She's a decorated army veteran who brings level-headed precision to her job. At the helm of the highly confidential operation is Herbert Mike Williams. Uh, this is Ernie Hudson, by the way, which is a really cool role for him, I think. A no-nonsense career military man who has to answer to his bosses, who won't be happy once they learn about the breach of protocol. Magic is also clearly an older adult version of a character Sam Beckett interacted with in Vietnam back in the day. The rest of the team uh, at headquarters include Ian Wright, who runs the artificial intelligence unit Ziggy, and Jen Zhao, who heads up digital security for the project. As Ben leaps from life to life, putting right what once went wrong, it becomes clear that he and the team are on a thrilling journey. However, Addison Magic, Ian, and Jen 
know that if they are going to solve the mystery of Ben's sleep and bring him home, they must act fast or lose him forever. Now, that's a lot to unpack. Um, based on this synopsis, I would probably venture that they're doing Swiss cheese brain again, which was one of the hallmarks of the original, that basically when Sam Beckett was leaping from life to life, he was missing huge swatches of his memory. And basically like parts of you know memories and personality from the person whose life he was leaping into basically landed in those missing empty areas, I guess you could say. So obviously they're not going to be able to ask Ben straight up why he jumped into this machine. Um, the thing I think that sticks out to me the most is how big of a freaking cast this is. Um, one of the things that was very clear about the original show is that there were really only two series regulars, you know, Sam Beckett and, and Al, the, the hologram. And everybody else on the show was just a, a rotating cast of whatever people Sam Beckett was interacting with, you know, in the past. Uh, this seems a little more um, extensive in the back end, as it seems like we're spending a lot more time with the actual project and headquarters, as they call it in the uh, synopsis, which I don't think is necessarily a good thing. Um, again, what made the original good is its deep focus on the individuals in the past. Um, the cast looks good. Uh, you know, again, I, I think the biggest thing as a as a fan of the original is that if there's not going to be some kind of involvement of the involvement of the Sam Beckett character, um, it's 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 an odd setup to make it a sequel rather than a straight up reboot. I mean, the only reason to have it as a sequel at this point is to have Sam Beckett available. Uh, he's still out there as of the series finale. Uh, it made very clear that he kept leaping for the rest of his life and never returned home because he just kept trying to help people. And so, you know, Sam's out there. Uh, seems really, really a strange choice not to at least have him on call, so to speak, to make some guest spots. Uh, now I know you were not like, you know, a religious quantum leap viewer, but what is your take on the synopsis here, Chris? So I'm not exactly qualified to specifically comment on this because of, of that fact. So, um, for, for me, and I know we did an entire episode on our favorite time travel stories, but it's, it's, it's typically like a sci-fi storyline or trope that I, I typically kind of shy away from simply because there's so many tropes surrounding it. Like you can't change anything of the past or the butterfly effect and all that jazz. So it, it comes, becomes kind of predictable in a lot of ways and only kind of the best of the best kind of really stand out in a way. Um, so I, I'm also, and I think I commented this when the initial news release came out for this, I'm kind of fatigued by this revival of 30 plus year old kind of franchises. Like CBS is holding on to that geriatric audience with, you know, like Magnum PI and, and MacGyver and stuff, which for shows like, you know, growing up back in the day, I absolutely loved, but like, it's kind of hard to rekindle that spirit. I mean, like, not everybody's Tom Selleck. I'm sorry. Um, like that's a fact. I'm sorry. Like um, so, I, I, it's just like I, I would much rather have something new and inventive that pushes boundaries and like like has a new spark rather than revisit old stuff. Um, so I, I don't know if that necessarily applies here, but um, if if I hear good things about it, maybe I'll check it out. I guess the big thing is like. Um... 
you, you kind of fell in love with with Sam Beckett in the original show, and that's that's one of the things where I came from. The guy was just really endearing and 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 Superman like. I guess is the best way to put it. Not in that he had powers, but that he was just he was this guy who was just constantly striving just to do the right thing, no matter how difficult it was, no matter how many obstacles that he ran up against he just kept trying to be the best person he could be and do the best thing for people and that that is you know i mean if you're like the superman archetype that you know constantly trying against all odds to do the right thing i mean he was just a great great character but i mean i think quantum leap at the time was something pretty darn groundbreaking i mean they did a lot of interesting stuff stuff that might be a little more problematic these days um, but that at the time were an interesting sci-fi way to look at, you know, uh, the recent past and examine, you know, social injustices. And, you know, what was it like for him to to leap into a, a you know, woman in, you know, the, at the height of like, you know, um, a women's rights movement situation and, you know, get, getting getting that out there and really discussing it in, through sci-fi tropes, you know. And I think there is room for that kind of storytelling. Um on TV today. I don't think any any show really does that sort of like examining the recent past and and how it informs the present and and talking a little bit about, you know, problems in our recent past. I think I think there's room for something like this. Um I don't know how quote unquote ballsy this show is going to be. Um if it is as ballsy as the original was, I I can see some very interesting stuff happening with it. Like I'm not I'm not dismissing the concept out of hand. It's just it's hard to call something quantum leap and and not at the very least bring you know the character of Sam Beckett back in some capacity. Um, it's just that the two are so intertwined. Uh, it, it, it's it's something I'm going to watch and and watch with great curiosity. But uh, you know I'm I'm hoping for some of that original charm to be there. Alrighty, folks. Well, that's it for nerd news. Uh, if you enjoy my ramblings about Quantum Leap, stick around because we're going to start rambling about Fantastic Four, uh, the 2005 film. How would we, quote unquote, fix the movie? Stick around. Ladies and gentlemen, it's welcome back. And it is time for a deep dive dive discussion of a Fantastic Four film in this week's Now, before we dive into this, we want to go ahead and make clear from the get-go, we're not talking about Fantforstic. Uh, I continue to pronounce this the movie's name that way, the 2015 uh, Fantastic Four movie. We are instead looking at a Fantastic Four from 2005, which was directed by Tim Story, written by Michael Franz and Mark Frost, and uh, featured uh, Yoan Griffith, Jessica Alba, Chris Evans, and Michael Chiklis in the role of the Fantastic Four, with Julian McMahon playing uh, Victor Von Doom. So uh, this film uh, kind of predates, obviously, uh, you know, the MCU. Um, was released at a time when superhero movies were, uh, you know, just kind of starting to to have some success. They didn't exactly uh, knock it out of the park with a budget. Uh, they had a budget of somewhere in the 80 million range, uh, but had a box office of roughly $330 million. So in short, it was financially successful. Although these days, 
uh, you know, after uh, significant leaps and bounds in superhero movie making. Uh, a lot of people look back at this movie with, um, let's say, some trepidation and some reservations. Uh, Chris, I'm going to put you on the spot here. Uh, what was sort of your reaction when you first saw this movie? Did you see it back in the day in theaters? And what was your take on it, man? I did. And it, it was just a very different climate, a very different time. And so um, at that time, this is before I had started reading comics at all. So I didn't really have a whole lot of experience with the FF at all. And so, um, in fact, I think I was working at Burger King at the time with like the toy release and everything. So I was just excited to have like a superhero movie. I didn't really have a whole lot of high standards with no previous knowledge of, of the title or anything. So, um, I think for some reason that the Fantastic Four cartoon back in the day in the 90s was one that I just did not miss. Or excuse me, that I didn't find. Like, I just missed that one. Um, So I, I, you know, of course, famously watched the Spider-Man, the X-Men one, Batman the Animated Series. But the FF one never, never grabbed me. Uh, I I missed it somehow. Um, So I, I was pretty excited about this one. And, you know, it's been 17 years. So a lot has changed since then. See, and I think that's fair. I saw this one in theaters, and I remember at the time uh, liking it a fair bit, actually. Um, uh, As you mentioned, the times were different. The climate in superhero movies was very different. My God, 2005 seems like just an age ago. At the same time, at the same time, I feel like watching this film, I felt like I was in junior year all over again. So, oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. I remember that I think like the previous year or something, Marvel started um, the Ultimate Fantastic Four comic book, and I had like just really started getting back into comics with Ultimate Spider-Man, and so I picked up Ultimate Fantastic Four, and so like the first year of that book basically, or the first few issues were basically my background when I walked into this movie. Um, so that probably colored things a little bit for me too, and may even color some of my critiques of that. But I remember liking it at the time. And there are things, I think, even to this day, realizing that a lot of stuff doesn't hold up, that the movie did right. Um, I'll just say that I really like you know, how they made an effort to make the Fantastic Four feel like a family, not a superhero team. There's a lot of stuff like, you know, the the pranking going on between Johnny Storm and Ben Grimm. That's like straight comic book right. stuff. Far and away the yeah. strength of the film. Evans and Chiklis, like, uh, were just pitch perfect here. Yeah, yeah. Their their chemistry was awesome. Um, absolutely together and, and separately they were great. And I think just like trying to create this family dynamic was the strength of the film but yeah we have a lot of things that we kind of wish we could fix about this thing in hindsight and hindsight being 2020 let's go ahead and dive in so chris what is your first fix for the fantastic four so by and large you know in revisiting this film for the first time in in probably over a decade um i overall enjoyed a, a good deal about it but there are some huge 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 missteps um just like an overall kind of bird's eye view type of picture of this. We talked about this with the first X-Men film. Um, And maybe it's a trend with 20th century Fox at the time. Um, It's very much, very much a 2005 film, very much a product of its time. You have Johnny going to the X games and he's a snowboard bro. Like he was every dude bro that I went to high school with snowboarding on the weekends. Um, Everybody was decked out just like him, like very much of its time. Um, 
even the casting, you can see why. Chris Evans is coming off things like Not Another Teen Movie and some of those spoof kind of films. Jessica Alba was like this rising star in Hollywood. She was every dude's crush. She had just come out of the massive success of Dark Angel for Fox. Um, Julian McMahon was, uh, you know, starring in Nip Tuck. Remember Nip Tuck? Oh, man, that was the big FX. Really put FX on the map. So, yeah, here's your here's your time. Here's your time travel story. Um, you know, Chickless was on the shield. That was another huge one for, I think FX. Um, and so it's very much a 2005 film. It's almost like a time capsule. Like I felt watching this film, I was transported, transported back to 2005. And I was just like, why do I have kids right now? Why are these kids watching this movie with me? Who are you? I feel like a, you know, like a 17 year old kid again. But, um, I think and, and some of it was fine, and some of it was I was able to overlook and laugh about. But for me, uh, the the greatest sin of this film is, it, is its overall treatment of female characters, period. And a lot of people will look back and cast that blame solely on the shoulders of Jessica Alba. And I, I do not. I think um, I liken her portrayal to that of... Um, to that of like an Andrew Garfield Spider-Man to um, to someone who just had like unfair expectations to Hayden Christensen in the prequel series, someone who had all of the weight of the world cast on their shoulders and did absolutely no favors by the creative team behind the scenes. Um, I mean, just, just, just looking at this, like in a very macro sense again, um, She's the invisible woman. So what's the first thing we make her do? Get naked. Twice. Twice. Let's get the hottest actress. Every guy is going goo goo gaga, male gazy over, and let's make her naked twice. Um, it's really, really, really gross. Um, and then the the writing and the script for her, she's very much a naggy woman. She is constantly, you know, going after Reed and, you know, bringing up his shortcomings. The relationship between her and Johnny is nothing but annoyance. There is no love. There is no familial relationship there whatsoever. She is always just like complaining about him and whatever. And that's fine. That's a sibling. That's a believable sibling thing. But it can't be the only thing. They have no affectionate moments whatsoever between the two of them. She is constantly nagging him. And again, that is not on her. You can only do with so much with the script that you're given. And then another one, I love Carrie Washington to the moon and back. Um, this is right before she took off with Scandal. Um, one of the biggest tropes that we have with blind characters in movies, as the son of a blind father... I can tell you with 100% certainty, blind people do not touch other people's face. It is the weirdest thing <laughs> ever. I, I, my, my dad came into my life um, when I was six years old. So my, he's been my dad for 27 years. In 27 years, he has never touched a human's face. In fact, one of my all-time favorite movies, Step Brothers, makes fun of this point with their blind neighbor. Have you seen Step Brothers, Dave? 
I have, yeah. It's, I, it's I, one of my yeah. all-time favorites. Their blind neighbor, they make fun of this. They said, hey, can I come over and touch your face later? <laughs> like, <laughs> blind people do not touch other people's faces. Like, what is that? Who started this rumor? Who lied <laughs> to Hollywood? It's the worst. It's the worst. It's so cringy. It's so awful. And uh, it's gross. Oh, here's the other one. Um, just remembered, you know, Lori Holton, Lori Holton is a great actress. She really blew yes. up, really blew up with The Walking Dead. Um, and I will always remember for Picket Fences back in the day, <laughs> David E. Kelly joint. Yeah, she was she was great in that show. Uh, and then just this, the whole treatment of that character and her reaction to Ben's transformation, running away like he's a monster. And then the piece de resistance, probably the most misogynistic thing outside of the naked, invisible woman, is her somehow just happening to be there where Ben is saving the jumper and pulling the fire truck. She just happened to be there on the bridge just to make this very dramatic publicity stunt of removing her wedding finger and just laying it on the ground. Uh, the wedding ring. I don't think she removed her finger. Uh, oh, the, although that would wedding, have been a fantastic the wedding, scene. The, the wedding ring. <laughs> the even more dramatic. You know what? I am so terrified of you. I'm so terrified of you. Not only are you going to take the ring off, I'm going to cut my entire finger off. That's how horrifying you are. Yeah. It's all, <laughs> this, whole, this whole thing and the treatment of women. Shocker. It was written by two men. And you and I talked about this like just in a in a side conversation last night and legitimate well-intentioned people have blind spots. And when you only, only have two white men writing a movie, surprise, surprise, the pair, the characters who are not white men don't have great material to work with. So yeah. Um, let's get some women in the writer's room. Let's get some people of color in the writer's room. Cause this is atrocious. Yeah, I remember uh, there being a lot of talk about Jessica Alba back in the day, even though the movie was pretty successful and generally not badly received overall at the time. I remember there being a lot of talk about Jessica Alba. And one of the biggest things that you kept constantly hearing was, oh, <laughs> who's going to believe that she's a scientist? <laughs> and I'm like, uh, yeah, why? Uh, I would not believe that uh, a beautiful woman can also be a scientist uh, who says that, you know, um, visual, uh, being visually pleasing <laughs> somehow precludes intelligence. Like, I, I never quite understood that particular, uh, you know, argument that they were making about the character at the time. Plus, you know, I mean, it's, it's pretty much acknowledged, let's be honest, that Sue Storm in the comic books, I mean, everybody says she's a knockout, you know, I mean... The King of Atlantis keeps going after her. So why is a beautiful woman a bad casting choice for uh, this particular scientist? I do not know. Uh, it was very, um, even back then, very obvious that people had some kind of very strange um, prejudice towards the idea of Jessica Alba playing Sue Storm because I guess she was just too pretty. I also think it's hilarious some of the stories that we got out of these movies, particularly the sequel, where apparently um, her direction at one point was you need to cry prettier in the scene, like be prettier while you cry. 
<laughs> so I remember reading that in an interview with Alba and, and why these movies were kind of a, a, a difficult uh, experience for her. Um, and let's also be pretty clear. It's, it's, you know, <clears throat> I don't have an, an, a problem with, uh, you know, people making some, some changes to their appearance to try to match the, um, appearance of the comic book character to a certain extent. But, uh, but Alba was a very weird situation. I think by the sequel, she has these really strange blue, um, contact lenses in. It's like the, the absolute biggest effort to make her look as, you know, Northern European as possible between, between the hair and the eyes. And I don't know, like the, the whole thing was in retrospect, the whole thing is very cringy. If you, if you cast Jessica Alba, you know, you want Jessica Alba, you don't have to, you know, spend eight years in the makeup chair to make her look, I don't know, lighter in skin tone and, and, and then put the, the, the blonde wig or, or, or hair dye or whatever. And then the blue con like, like back off at some point, guys. I mean, it's a, it's a little, it's a little much like it, it, you're making it starting to look like you wanted Jessica Alba's name, but you didn't want Jessica Alba. And, and that, and that's a problem. So yeah, uh, I, I totally agree with you. The whole, the whole female treatment in this movie is it's so 2000 and late. I mean, it's 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 very clearly not just a product of its time, but also a product of nobody stopping and saying, "Hey, how do we how do we best serve these female characters?" Not really in discussion, I think, when they were writing this thing, and that is a problem in the movie. Now, Dave, your first fix has me really intrigued. Yeah, so um, that that this is probably a function of me really liking uh, the uh, early goings of the um, Ultimate Fantastic Four comic book. Um, you know, we've we've we, the original um, origin of the Fantastic Four uh, in Marvel Comics is you know this whole they went to space thing, right? Um, but in the Ultimate Fantastic Four comic books, it is not so much space that they go to; it is the negative zone, and then the properties of the negative zone have this effect, you know, on on their bodies, and then there's this continuous thing about trying to. Um, explore the negative zone, understand the negative zone um, that keeps popping up in the series. And it's very, um, it's very, very sci-fi. Um, whereas I think, you know, the whole going into space in a, in a, in a space shuttle spaceship kind of thing, it's, it's very much a view of science fiction that is rooted in the, in the 1960s. Um, and although that is, that is charming in its way, I think the whole idea of the negative zone is much more in line with with you know how how we view science fiction today. I mean, if you're going to go out into space um, in a science fiction story, it's usually you know different planets, different you know alien worlds, exploration, blah blah blah. But just like hey, we go up to space, for, you know, for a quick jaunt, we get irradiated, we come back, and we're superheroes. It's it's a very old fashioned view of science fiction, and I really like this this idea of the negative zone of the space and what might be out there. I think there's a lot of a, a lot of fun and a lot of possibilities uh, storytelling wise for for sequels and the like that doesn't exist if you're just like you know hopping on a on a on a rocket to space. And I will also go ahead and just say like. I will freely admit that uh, given what happened in the last few years, you know, with, with like private individuals and companies like William Shatner going to space and stuff, this feels a little more apropos and of the moment now. But when you're looking at, you know, 
2005. I think they almost went a little too retro with this, unless they were going to do something very, very specific, which I'll talk about later that I really wish this movie would have done. But if you're going to set it, you know, in the present day, like you, you did at the time, I would have said, let us swap in the negative zone and, and, you know, open up a little bit more possibilities of what is this place and, and add a little intrigue and sci-fi to this, because, you know, the whole thing with like going up into space is never revisited for the rest of the movie. It's just gone, you know, whereas a a negative zone could have kind of been hovering over this whole movie and, you know, they could have gone back there or there might have been something over there that they need to try to to try to cure Ben. And and there was there were possibilities there that I think we kind of missed out on just by saying we jump on a rocket. We went up to space. We got irradiated. We came back. Boom, superhero. Um, it, It seems too simplistic for modern storytelling conventions, I guess. Yeah. And I think um, particularly with um, the reveal of the fourth episode this week of, of at least when, while we're recording of my nerd commendation today, I think this just makes so much sense for where the MCU is headed and where it's at now. I think the negative zone is just like an easy pick. Like it, it just makes so much sense. And you have to think, you have to take things into context too. You can't just copy one thing for another. I, I mean, like, yes, um, that's what happened in fantastic four. Number one, but you're missing some really important context. Oh, when was that written? 1961. Think about just the entire context historically of what was going on. Exactly. Yes. Uh, we had not been to the moon yet. Um, they even say, I, I reread, um, the original FF number one for, you know, in prep for the podcast and, and they literally say on the page, come on, we have to hurry before the commies do it. So I mean, like, this is not, we're not dealing with the same deck of cards here. So you have to update it. You have to, you can't, you can't be playing. This is apples and oranges. You can't do the same thing. And I think it makes, so, so I was intrigued, um, but hearing you lay it out like that, I mean, like that's, that's some important context and that I, I know that you want to stay true to the source material, but you can't be a purist like that because you're missing like, com- uh, like a glaring, glaring difference here. Unless, unless uh, more on that later. Yeah. Uh, Chris, what is your second fix for the fantastic four movie? Uh, n- nothing about Dr. Doom works in this movie. It is all <laughs> testify. Just no- <laughs> nothing. I mean, all, all love to Julian McMahon. Um, I never watched Nip Tuck. It wasn't for me, but horribly miscast. The rest of the cast, I love. Yes, Jessica Alba's great in that role. They just gave her to work with. I'm sorry. Julian McMahon is horribly miscast here. It is the pinpoint case, the epitome of this is a hot actor right now. So let's give him a big film blockbuster movie to be in. He does nothing in this movie. So many, and we're not even going to talk about Fant, Forstick, Hacker Doom. The, you, there is a certain, and, and, and I think with the, the rights going to Marvel Studios, here's my hope for, I mean, like it can't be any worse than what we've got. You got to lean into the camp of Doctor Doom. Absolutely. You have to. It's what makes him great. You have to you have to get like to the core of that character 
And so um, this is going to tie into your next point, but um, so I'll just cover the basic points and then, and then we'll get into it more with your next fix. He has to be from Latveria. That's the most important thing about that character. Has to. He has to be from Latveria. You have to see it. It can't be a tease for a sequel that goes absolutely nowhere. He has to be from Latveria. We have to see him come to the United States and still have that back and forth relationship. His entire inspiration, the only thing that he truly cares about is his country. He is a freaking sorcerer. And in the advent of something like the Multiverse of Madness and WandaVision and leaning into magic and the arcane arts, Doctor Strange, perfect. It's a perfect leeway into a real Doctor Doom. Um, and so I'm, I'm, I'm going to save more for, for what you say. Um, on your next point, but like we've we've got to, we've got to retool this whole thing, honey, because none of it works. Well, I think the second most important thing about him probably is that he's a self-aggrandizing ass, um, and 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 that doesn't really come across in the performance uh, in this particular movie either. Um, I mean, he's he's pl- he's plenty of a butthole, but you know, it's just there is something so cocky and arrogant and haughty about him that if you do not incorporate that full force you're missing out on dr doom one more thing one more thing really quick too the whole love triangle bs that's misogynistic as crap too yeah totally i mean it's it's the usual you know she can't make up her mind for herself you know kind of thing i I hate that crap um yeah so anyways uh you wanted to segue into my yeah just go ahead yeah just go ahead yeah basically the entire third act is a mess uh, and that has a lot to do with the fact of how rushed it is to try to turn Julian McMahon into some kind of facsimile of Doctor Doom, which, as you've already noted, doesn't land. And I think if you're going to have if you're going to have Doom present on this mission or whatnot, then you need to make you need to make the audience, at least the ones not in the know about comic books and the Fantastic Four, think that the suckers did. I think that will be the that would be the smartest thing you do. If you have to have him at the start on this mission, you make everybody think he is dead and you have him disappear for the rest of the movie. And then when we catch up with him, it'll be like a sequel and uh and boom shakalaka, here he is and he he has you know mastered whatever arcane arts or whatever and he's now the the dictator of Latveria and everybody's like, "Oh my god, it's that guy," you know. But but <sighs> Anything that you try to do with Doctor Doom in this movie after that, you know, that incident where everybody gets their powers is is an unholy mess. And so I think the smartest thing to do is to remove him from the equation. And where does the movie need to land? It needs to focus on on two things. Number one, we need a different villain. I nominate the Mole Man. If you want to have a big confrontation there at the end, I think that lends itself perfectly. He's such a classic uh, Fantastic Four villain. And I think there's fun to be had with that. And two... Uh, the bulk of the movie should really focus on, you know, as I mentioned, like the negative zone, exploring the negative zone and trying to find a cure for Ben. That needs to be like the driving force behind this. Remove the doom of it all and focus on, you know, a cure because, you know, Ben is going through some crap. 
Ben is always going through some crap. So let's go ahead and lean into that. But but anything that we do with Doctor Doom in this movie is a mess. And by removing him from the equation and then catching up with him by the time the sequel rolls around and having this big reveal of here he is, he survived, and you know, he he's taken over this whole country. And, you know, that, that then you have a much more room for the traditional Doctor Doom to breathe. Rushing him into this movie just did not work, and it messed the third act up completely. I got you right here. Here's my, here's my master plan. Disney Plus series, Doom. Doom! <laughs> I love it. Yeah, so, I'm, so I did a lot of research because it was really bugging me. I found a great um, Watch Mojo... Um, video it's about five minutes long uh about like the origins of doom because i'm not the most um up to speed fantastic four reader um and so it referenced heavily um fantastic four books of doom it's a a mini series from i believe 2006 uh written by um superstar ed brubaker and so it really kind of dives into his history i think another another thing that really bothers me um, we, I think we really need like an Eastern European actor to portray doom. And we'll talk more about that in a moment, but like that's central to the character is his heritage and, and like I said, Latveria. And so I, I say you get like a six, six issue limited Disney plus series that his is his origin story. We have all of that. Um, you get like the death of his parents. He has turned to the dark arts, uh, the arcane arts, and his sorcery background, um, you get like a full-fledged fleshing out of that character. And then when he shows up in the FF film franchise, it has all the more meaning to it. You have that rivalry between him and Reed. It has so much more meat on that bone. Uh, th- th- so that's that's what I want to do. I, I want a six-issue Disney Plus series of just called Doom. Yeah, I, I I like that, and uh, you know, have it like be the prequel to a Fantastic Four movie, and then we actually have a familiarity with the guy. I think I think that's interesting, um, but I also am one of the firm believers that I think movies should be able to stand on their own to a certain extent, and you shouldn't have to do you know homework by watching certain TV shows or reading you know uh, expanded universe books or something like that. Like the movies have to stand on their own to a certain extent. Um, and here, Doom definitely just does not work on its own merits, even if they would have tried to make a prequel show. Like, this Doom does not work. Um, and I think part of that is just that they're rushing that third act. Let's get him out of here and, and save him for a sequel, maybe. Yeah, I think also, like, just the pull of that, he's easily one of Marvel's most iconic villains. Even, you want to stretch that out to all of comics. And the, the fact that he's never been done close to right I think the pull of that series would just be like selling candy to a baby. Stealing candy? Stealing? Do you sell candy? Nope. Uh, whatever. It would be a huge hit. Okay, you steal candy from a baby. Selling because something you big time. I you can't know. sell it to a baby. Baby doesn't have a job, man. Okay. Uh, so it's not- <laughs> get a job, baby. Ah, <laughs> uh, yeah. All right, man. What is your third and final fix for the Fantastic Four? I'm just going broad brush here. A whole new script. It's It's so bad 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 um the whole script is just awful um the the puns are bad i mean like the first scene doom tells uh, reed that he's always trying to stretch um it's so oh i forgot this misogynistic crap the whole as much as i love evans as johnny storm the whole all the nurses all the nurses scenes 
you're hot. Why, thank you. Like, come on, just get out of here. Just, just scrap the <laughs> whole thing. Just like men, men cannot be trusted. Okay. Just let women write the script. Like it's so bad. That's it. That's all. Yeah. The, the, the puns were particularly bad in this. And I do not know why, uh, writers in those early comic book movies always felt like having some kind of stupid pun that has some, that somehow ties back to their powers. Um, many writers even do this like today i mean i i remember in like the flash tv series early on there was like i'll be back in a flash and all that crap like it's 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 not particularly clever you know it's just it's 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 not punny it's just too on the nose to be clever um Leave the so yeah i mean the, yeah exactly yeah, dad jokes. It, that's exactly right. It feels like the, most of the movies are protracted dad joke. So, um, yeah, um, the humor definitely did not land in this movie. I wholeheartedly agree with that, Chris. All right, I've heard this a lot, Dave, so I'm excited to dive into this. Yeah, so my final fix, very simple. Um, I'm a firm believer that certain superhero properties are so intrinsically tied to their time period that it makes perfect sense to make it a period piece. And I think the Fantastic Four is one of those properties. Can you update it for the modern day? Certainly. Are there good stories to be gleaned for that? Absolutely. But when I think of the Fantastic Four, I I get a vibe of something that is distinctively 1960s. And I think bringing that vibe back and making it a period piece would be an absolutely fascinating choice. It would allow in the MCU, for example, it would allow, you know, to to kind of explore a certain time period in the MCU history too, which I think is fascinating. Um, but beyond that, even at this point, like just saying, okay, we're making a Fantastic Four movie. It doesn't have to tie in with any other movies. This is completely standalone. There's no crossover coming. There is no intrinsic benefit of 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 setting it in modern day when you can just literally plop it right into the time period that it was made in you know i mean you can almost get like a a mad men vibe from like oh yeah yeah um, yeah, yeah from like read a little bit you know yeah, absolutely. you can dive you can dive into it rather than you know being unintentionally misogynistic you can dive a little bit into the misogyny of the day and the kind of stuff that sue storm had to put up with trying to become a scientist and all that um, you know, we like to think that our time, our time today is at least somewhat more enlightened than the 1960s. Uh, you don't put money really, on that. Uh, somewhat. You can, you can lay it on much thicker, I think, with the whole Ben Grimm is a monster thing, uh, in, in a period piece. Uh, you know, like it comes across, as you said already, really bad, you know, this, this overdramatic, I, I remove my 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 ring and and put it on this bridge but you know you take that same kind of scene and you plop it like into a period piece and suddenly you know it it just feels stylized for the time period it might actually work much better in a period piece so i think a fantastic four movie this fantastic four movie in particular where it would have not been part of a larger shared universe they had a great opportunity to say screw it we're making a superhero movie takes place in the early 60s let's go ahead and do this thing I think it would have worked wonders, wonders for this movie. And it would give it a much more uh, distinct vibe, something that sets it apart from other superhero movies. Like, look, man, uh, it's like, um, 
a great analogy to me, I think, is something like uh, The Legend of Zelda Wind Waker, a fantastic game that at the time that it was released was derided by fans left and right because of its cell-shaded art style. And now, all these years later, people look back at it and they're like, holy crap, dude, out of that particular time period, that's the game that holds up best because it made some very specific stylistic choices that make it timeless. And I think making this a period piece, as weird as that sounds, would make it a timeless sci-fi movie. Because it is firmly rooted in this one time period, it'll play just as well in, in 2005 as it would in 2015 or in 2025. You know, it is it wouldn't feel like it's so rooted in the two, early 2000s and its attitudes because it would be clearly rooted in sort of a retro-futuristic time period. I really, really love the idea of a Fantastic Four period piece, Chris. Yeah, I think um, a movie in the MCU that does not get near enough love. I love Captain America, the first Avenger. And I think I do too. I absolutely love it. I think it's perfect. I think um, we've talked about this before, but like that's that's how I would make a Superman movie, something like that. Um, absolutely. Uh, so I think it, you even have like the hijinks at the end of that movie that brings him to present day. So even if you did want to make it part of the larger connected universe, I mean, for God's sake, it's sci-fi. So, of course, you can have like a time travel shenanigan type of thing. So, yeah, I think that would work perfectly. All right. So uh, those are our fixes for the Fantastic Four from 2005. Uh, what are your fixes? Please find us on social media at Nerd by Word or individually at that Nerd Dave and at that Nerd Chris. And let us know how you would fix the movie. Now, before we decided to move on for... Um, our nerd commendations, which I'm uh, sure all of you are looking forward to. Uh, Chris and I have decided to take a step back for one second and have a little bit of fun with the Fantastic Four. We just recently had a fan cast come to life as John Krasinski portrayed for about 30 seconds uh, Reed Richards in um, Doctor Strange in a Multiverse of Madness. So given that we're getting a new Fantastic Four movie at some point, uh, why don't we go ahead and talk a little bit about fan castings from our perspective? Who do we think would make uh, a good cast member for this new movie? Now, we're going to go ahead and go through the Fantastic Four as well as Doctor Doom. And let's start with Reed. Chris, who would you cast as Reed Richards? Uh, I'm a big Dev Patel fan. Um, he just really gives me that nervous energy, like Brainy in his own head, missing the forest through the trees, like... Uh, just like not overthinking stuff and, and missing like what's right in front of him. And so um, really big fan of his work. And, and that's my read. See, I really like that. That's an, that's an interesting casting and it's, it's, it would give a whole different vibe to the movie, I think. So I famously, uh, before we recorded, not famously, that was weird to say, um, I had basically two different casts. I had like one standard cast where I kind of went with like an older cast but then I was like thinking, perhaps overthinking that like this is going to be the future of the MCU. So I developed a younger cast and some of your picks were in my initial list. Dave, who is your Reed Richards? I'm extremely torn between two different individuals for Reed. Uh, one that is a little more like um, what sort of traditional casting agents would look for and one that's a little more off the wall, but I think would be really cool. So the more traditional casting would be probably Brandon Routh. I'm a huge fan of his. Uh, he was, you know, fantastic in Superman Returns. Uh, 
his performance does not get nearly enough love. Um, on top of that, he did some work in the Arrowverse. I never was good at saying that for some reason. Um, as well as uh, on the on the show Chuck. And I think he has a real range and is really underappreciated. And I could see him definitely doing uh, a Reed Richards justice. The, the casting that I find much more interesting, though, um, and I would love to see on the big screen is William Jackson Harper, uh, who played Cheedy on The Good Place. Um, I think the Cheedy character, although being, you know, a philosopher, has some parallels with, you know, Reed Richards, the nervous energy, the the obsessiveness, the over overlooking and missing the obvious answers sometimes, um, and uh, the, the whole brainy attitude, like his performance in that show is so, so good. And I could see him making a really, really cool Reed Richards. Yeah. I love both of these. I originally had Ralph before I decided to go Siskiyou a little bit younger. Um, another reason that I, I kind of took him out is um, strictly physique wise. He's a little bit too ripped to be Reed for me. Um, <laughs> <laughs> maybe he could scale that down. Uh, yeah. But um the one that really like put him on the list for me was particularly his work as Ray Palmer on, on the arrow shows before I, I just had had enough of those, those shenanigans in the flash. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I really, really enjoyed him. I love Superman returns more than most. Um, the only real blot on that is uh, the actor who shall not be named. That's a piece of crap that played Lex Luthor, but um I love William Jackson Harper as well. I've seen bits and pieces of The Good Place, and it absolutely, um, your, your one of your Sue picks is perfect for that reason as well, because the chemistry between the two of them is just out of this world. Yes, absolutely, man. So who's your pick for uh, Sue Storm? I love everything about Ana de Armas, uh, particularly Knives Out. And then um, I haven't seen the Bond film that she was in recently yet, but I've heard great things about that. Even... I think it's like a even a silent teaser for this Marilyn Monroe uh, film that she's going to be in. I think it's for Netflix. I've never really been into the whole Marilyn Monroe thing, but just the presence in a silent teaser that she has. She has that commanding stage presence, and I, I just think the world of her. So she is for sure my Sue Storm. See, I think that's a very, very interesting uh, casting. Maybe this time uh, we can not put weird, you know, blue contacts uh in, in sue storm that'd be super yeah all right so i kind of spilled the beans a little bit but who's your sue dave so i have i have again two different possibilities here because there's there's so many different directions you can take this in let's just say if if reed would be william jackson harper then i think sue should be Kristen bell i know that might sound odd to some people but i'm a huge fan of bell's work i think that i think she can do basically anything um and the chemistry that she had with william jackson harper in uh, the good place is exactly what you need as far as the chemistry goes between uh, between Reed and Sue. There has to be real chemistry there for that relationship to be believable, especially considering the the shortcomings of Reed <laughs> um, as a character. Like the dude's got issues, and and there must be real chemistry there for us to believe that somebody like Sue would put up with his butt. Uh, and then my second possibility is uh, Rachel Brosnahan because I absolutely love the Miss Maisel show on 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 Amazon Prime. I know that might sound weird, but I just I just think she's the greatest thing since sliced bread. Like her her performance in that show ranges from being absolutely hilarious to being heartbreakingly dramatic. Like she can do it all, and I think 
anytime you can get uh, an actor that can do anything uh, and, and put them in the Fantastic Four, it's p- perfect because there has to be, you know, there has to be warmth, there has to be humor, but there has to also be drama. And, and I think Rachel Brosnahan can do it all. Just a real quick shout before we move on. Um, Mike Lawrence, who was a previous guest on our show, had one of my favorite fan casts, and this was back 10 years ago. But he was very much in line with you, Dave, of making it a period piece in the 60s. And this was in the height of Modern Family. And he wanted Ty Burrell and Julie Bowen to be Reed and Sue. And I think that's perfect as well. Oh, that is a very cool casting. All right. So who is your uh, who's your um, Ben Grimm? I struggled with this one a lot, but I'm, I'm going with Liev Schreiber who's shown up in a lot of Marvel properties, hilariously misused as a great saber tooth in the abomination that is X-Men Origins Wolverine. I thought he was one of the few bright spots of that film. Um, And then he also voiced the Kingpin in the perfect film, the greatest superhero movie uh, into the Spider-Verse. And so like he has so much range and particularly, you know, with something with a, with a character like Ben Grimm, you're going to go voice first. And he has incredible voice talent and can really, really has a lot of range. And we've heard him do that stereotypical like New Yorker accent with the Kingpin. And so I think he's perfect for Ben Grimm. See, that's an interesting casting. I, I actually agree with that. He would he would be very good in that role. I absolutely love yours, though. Who is your Ben? <laughs> Yeah, Nick Offerman. I think I think he basically plays a Ben Grimm adjacent character in Parks and Rec. Anyways, uh, he has a very very cool voice that I think would be really distinctive. And if you're going to go voice first, as you mentioned, then I, I think Offerman would make a fantastic a uh, fantastic Ben Grimm. I, I, I no notes, perfect, no notes. <laughs> All right, who's your Johnny Storm? Oh, you're gonna love this one. I'm flipping everything on its head. I saw this in my deep dive on the internet, and I absolutely love it. Andrew Garfield. I oh, that, That's cool, man. I, you know, I mean, like the best buddies, some people ship them and I wouldn't be mad about it. I, uh, Andrew Garfield as Johnny Storm just makes so much sense. And, and to see him, if, if we go big picture, not to put the cart before the horse, but if we see him, I love the chemistry that he had with Tom Holland. So if we could see them on screen as, as Johnny and like, and Peter, like, that's just perfect for me. I love everything about Andrew Garfield. I love everything that he does. Like I'm an Andrew Garfield super fan. And so I just, I just want him back in a superhero film. Like he loves it. He's a super fan himself. And if we can't have him as Spider-Man, doggone it, let's make him the human torch. Yeah. You know, uh, I like this casting. I, I think one of the problems is probably his age, Yeah, you know, um, because Johnny generally needs to be kind of uh, on the younger side compared to the rest of the cast. But, uh, you know, at, at this point, um, I'm willing to look past that. If I'm willing to look past um, um, Hayden Christensen playing Attack of the Clones era, um, uh, Anakin Skywalker again, <laughs> then I, th- I think I could look past this uh, just to get him back, you know, in in uh, in this kind of superhero movie. Dude is just awesome from top to bottom. Not, not to spoil a future episode, but... Thank God they didn't use any CGI there. We'll just let I, it be what it yeah. is. Um, <laughs> but yeah, absolutely. So this is the one I actually struggled with in, in Johnny for the longest time because I really want that younger brother. So maybe somebody else can come up with a better casting. Maybe you've got something, but I don't typically view a lot of younger adult mediums. So like I want that cocky younger fly by the seat of his pants type of 
of younger brother. I really wanted to be a kid brother, but I just couldn't think of anybody. So, so I, I don't watch Stranger Things, but so, so maybe you got something here, Dave. I, I do watch Stranger Things, and it is a Stranger Things uh, alumnus that I think would make a great uh, Johnny Storm, and that's uh, Joe Keery, whose uh, character was originally conceived as, this, as the stereotypical 80s movie uh, butthole, you know, really kind of like this jockey bad guy, you know, the, the one that they have to race on snowboards at the end of the movie or in, in, to, to win the ski resort back or something, you know. Um, but uh, had such a natural charm to him that he kind of transformed as a character over time. So uh, he can do this incredibly, you know, cocky, self-involved dude, but he can also show like real feeling and caring and emotion because that's sort of been the trajectory of that character. Um, of course, he would have to get a haircut, but I think Joe Keery would be absolutely fantastic as Johnny Storm. Oh, see, no, I say leave the long hair. Something that I really wanted is I was like dreaming this up. I want a longer hair, flippant hair. I mean, like I'm biased, but like I want a young, <laughs> cocky Johnny Storm that like flips his hair because he thinks he's like way too cool for you. Last note on Johnny, please, for the love of whatever God you pray to or goddess, can we not have Zac Efron? Please. He's too old, man. He's just not... He does not give me Johnny Storm. He just played He just played a dad in, like, uh, um, the new um, Firestarter. I mean, he's just, like, way too old to play the kid brother to pretty much anybody. Um, yeah, I, 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 don't, I don't think that would be a good move in any way, shape, or form. Also, please don't cast anybody from a CW show. That's all I'm asking. All right, so finally, who's your Doctor Doom? Okay, so I can went completely off the rails. Like I said earlier in the episode, it is it is vitally important for me that we have an actor of Eastern European origin. I think it's vital to the character of um, of Victor von Doom. And so this is a completely niche pick. One of my all-time favorite shows is Vikings. So I'm going with... Um, Russian actor Danila Koslovsky, who portrayed um, Prince I- um, Prince Igor, no, Prince Oleg, excuse me, uh, in Vikings uh, of the Kievan Rus, and so this is a real deep cut. But he has there's a, I think the world of the entire cast of Vikings. I think it's, I think it's per capita probably the best acted. Um, television series i've ever seen um travis fimmel's ragnar lothbrook is one of my all-time favorite things peter fronson's um king harald Finehair is out of this world too um alex hugh anderson's um ivar the boneless i could go on like this whole cast Catherine winnick as lagatha the shield maiden uh, there's so many great actors in this series um but i think the best one that lands perfectly for me is Daniela Koslovsky. He came in one of the latter seasons as the primary protagonist and just has that very Doom-like presence. And I think that's something that's been hilariously missed in our previous on-screen iterations. Doom has to have this commanding presence. He has to have the voice. He has to have something that just sends a chill through your spine. And uh, Koslovsky definitely has this from what I saw as Prince Oleg. That's that's a that's a fascinating casting, man. I didn't see that one coming at all. I I love yours though, and famously they did it with Gemma Chan. They know that they underutilized an actor previously in the MCU, and they brought him right back. 
And here we are with Mads Mikkelsen, who is just such oh, a scenery chewer when he gets him. going. I love him. He's perfect. He's everything. In, he is perfect in every way. And I would, I think he would make a Doctor Doom to, you know, it would just shake the earth. I mean, he, he would be such great casting. I would love to see his version of Doctor Doom. Yeah, I love, he's my favorite Bond villain. I, I love Le Chief. I love Casino Royale. I do too. Oh, it's so great. I love, um, I even love him as Galen Erso. And like, so to see him like on, as a good guy was really, really cool. But I think, um, I think the world of him um, and he was really, uh, you know, underutilized as Caecilius. Um, also as, as, a, as, you know, someone with Danish ancestry in my background, you know, Danish pride. But um, I, I, just, I just think the world of him and I would love to see it. Alrighty, folks, and here's another call to social media. We would love to know what your fan cast is for the various Fantastic Four characters. Find us at Nerd by Word on Twitter and Instagram, or individually at that Nerd Chris and at that Nerd Dave. When we come back from our final break, it's time for Nerd Commendations. We got some good stuff this time, so stick around. And we're back, folks. It's time to recommend some new nerdy media in our favorite segment. All right, Chris, what are you nerd commending this week? Well, I'm stealing your fave. But, Dave, it's way past time that we talked about Ms. Marvel on Disney+. Plus. Um, we talked extensively about the power change and, and our reservations with that. Um I'm still, I'm still um, interested and intrigued to see where they go fully with the the power set here, um, but I'm I, I love this show. It's it's easily my favorite um, Disney Plus series. It's one of my favorite television shows in recent years. Um, the power set is cool and intriguing and interesting, and I think it's inventive, and I love that it is tied specifically to her heritage. But far and away, the most important thing um, about this show is the family. And they absolutely nailed it 100%. I want Zenobia Shroff uh, as Muniba to just adopt me. I want her to be my mom. Like, just please take me in. Um, and with this last episode, the fourth episode, as of the time that we're recording now, I want Nani to be my Nani. I, I love her so much. Um Everybody in this show is acting their tukas off. And um, similarly to what we got with Soshi Gomez in the Multiverse of Madness, Iman Vellani is just everything that we wanted her to be. Um, she's a superstar. Every interview that you read is just like, that's Kamala Khan. It's perfect. Um, I love so much about what this show represents. I love what it is teaching me about Pakistani and South Asian culture, what it's teaching me about the Islamic religion. Um, I did a deep dive on the partition um, that took place, you know, in 1947. And even as the history buff that I like to fashion myself, I've learned so much, so much more about South Asian history as a result of this show. And I think that it's so important for so many underrepresented groups of people. Um, I've really enjoyed seeing people who are of South Asian descent or who are Muslim and their reactions on social media, on TikTok, on Twitter, on Instagram, and just seeing um, 
the the tears of joy in their eyes seeing themselves represented um i can't say enough about this cast it's perfect it's it's just a gorgeous gorgeous show and it means so much to me um so much so because i love that this show is geared towards younger age groups um and it it's it's really important to me i mean um, every Wednesday, my five-year-old daughter just runs to me and says, Daddy, can we watch Miss Marvel? She's her favorite superhero. We watch it together. And um, that is something... I've never been like the type of nerdy parent was like, this shall be what you do. I've always just like loosely introduced things to my kids. Or with with my daughter, she saw me playing the, the Avengers video game. Um, and while it has a lot of warts, Far and away, the best thing about that show, uh, or excuse me, about that game is is Kamala Khan. And so she fell in love with her just watching me play that video game. And now she has her own Barbie doll that's Ms. Marvel. And she watches the show with me every day. And so I think there is so much importance that this show carries. Um, and I just, I, th- I think the world of it. I really love it too. And I still have my reservations about the power change and what all that implies. And I'm still kind of watching how that shakes out. Um, But I think they really capture the character perfectly. And I think there's just so much to love in this show. Uh, I read online that there was some speculation that this was one of the, um, uh, the lowest viewed of the Disney plus original Marvel shows. And I think that just is a travesty to say the least. It is it is so very good. It has such a a unique vision compared to the other uh, shows. It's it's very distinct. Um, it's just very cool from top to bottom, and I, and I think it just it deserves all the love it can get at this point. I think some important context there. It was being released the exact same day as the last three or uh, two or three episodes of Kenobi, and so yeah, exactly. one of the most anticipated series for a long, long, long time by a massive fandom, and if. You know, you're, not everybody's on summer vacay like us, so you can watch both early in the morning. But like, um, uh, so I think a, I think that diluted some of the numbers as well. And then, of course, you have the idiotic bigots and and whatever. But screw them; they don't matter. Um, but I'm telling you, go check out this show. It's absolutely beautiful. Watch it with your family, um, even folks who are of different backgrounds but are from like immigrant families. Um, say that it is it really touches them and there's a lot that they can relate to so um i mean like even as like a white man who's lived here my whole life um several generations removed from you know immigration um it's still there's it's it's a universally um relatable show uh i also oh quick shout the way that the art comes to life the texting, the text messages, the emojis come to life is absolutely groundbreaking and beautiful. So like the art style I'm obsessed with on this as well. It's almost like a live action, like into the spider verse uh, as, as close as we could get to that. So I, I love that about the show as well. Yeah. Testify, man. All right, Dave, uh, the comic that was written and drawn and scripted just for you has arrived. And it is perfect in every way. Ladies and gentle people, the first issue of a five-issue limited series written by Gail Simone with art by Phil Noto has arrived. I'm talking about the variants number one. The variants is a Jessica Jones mystery. 
uh, it focuses on Jessica Jones uh, being uh, in contact, exposed to all sorts of uh, variations of herself from across the multiverse. We meet uh, two of those in the first issue. I don't want to you know, go into spoiler territory. Uh, as of this recording, uh, the first issue was just released. And so all I want to say uh, in, the, in the sort of most general terms period is this. Uh, Phil Noto's artwork is flawless, uh, perfectly capturing Jessica Jones's not just her appearance, but most importantly, her facial expressions, that constant uh, skepticism in her interactions and all that. It, it's absolutely flawless. Uh, Gail Simone, it feels like, was just born to write uh, Jessica Jones, perfectly capturing her voice and her mannerisms from previous portrayals of the character. Uh, the book is gorgeous. The mystery is fascinating. I can't wait to see her in her act in future issues with uh, already the two first variants that were introduced. There's there's some real uh, there's some real stuff to be mined here that I think is going to be absolutely awesome. As a huge Jessica Jones fan, this is the book for me, and I cannot wait to read more. Gail, I love you. You are flawless. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm definitely going to have to check this one out. My desktop wallpaper that I'm looking at right now is a, um, a Phil Noto piece that he did for Marvel's 80th anniversary and captures like the different decades of Marvel history. So I'm excited to check this one out. I, I, I'm, I'm not near versed enough in Gail Simone comic books, you know, being a latecomer to DC comics, but I'm excited to check this one out. Yeah, you need to get on that, man, because Gail is incredible. Alrighty, folks, that's it for a new episode of the Nerd Byword Podcast. If you like what we just heard, please find us on your favorite podcasting platform. Drop us a rating, a review, and of course, follow so you never miss an episode. We are available wherever podcasts can be found. Uh, you can find us on Amazon Music, on Spotify. You can find us on, on Apple Podcasts. And of course, our very own new and improved website, nerdbyword.com. And big shouts to Dave for all that labor-intensive work that he's doing at the website. Guys, you're going to love it. It's absolutely gorgeous. Um, be also sure to hit us up on social media, on Twitter and Instagram, at NerdByWord, or individually, that Nerd Dave, that Nerd Chris, where you can argue about comics. You can also slide into our Discord server and talk about uh, comic books that you're reading, shows that you're watching, uh, pro wrestling even. I put a, put a server on there, or a, a channel on there for pro wrestling uh, for, for nerds like me. Um, and as always, stay well and stay nerdy. The Nerd Byword is written and produced by Chris and Dave, two nerds with a love of all things pop culture. The podcast features music by Al Jimenez with additional drops composed by Joe Biondi. Our show art is by Ashery Design. Find us at nerdbyword.com and wherever podcasts are available. Mm-hmm.